This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is the brilliant Adam Grant. Adam is an organizational psychologist and a beloved professor at Wharton. He is also a number one New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Adam and I talked about why people generally fear being wrong, He says that we live in a world that celebrates certainty and often mistakes confidence for competence. We also talked about why intelligent thinkers fail to rethink a concept and how this limits their potential. Adam explains the trap of letting our ideas become our identities and how we can find common ground with one another while navigating a charged topic. You'll also find out why Adam is a recovering logic bully. Last, if you can hear it, I'm sorry about the background noise in the very beginning of the conversation. That's just some work from home life for you. Another, I think, hallmark of being a logic bully, and I, I know because this is what I do all the time, is like, okay, I, I I just realized that somebody seems to be wrong about something that I think I'm an expert on, and it's my now it's my moral responsibility to correct them. So let's get to my chat with Adam Grant. How is everything? It's kind of fun to launch a book and go on book tour sitting in one place. So that's that's been the highlight, I guess. How about you? It's kind of amazing, especially when you have kids at home, right? And you're not going from one plane to another. Love that I can be in nine countries in one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did you start writing this book pre-quarantine? Yeah, it was an accident. So tell me about the inception of it. I've had a hard time admitting that I'm wrong for most of my life. As a kid, my friends called me Mr. Facts. My best friend in middle school one day hung up the phone on me and said he refused to ever speak to me again until I admitted that I was wrong. 
And then, you know, fast forward a few years and I'm seeing the same thing in all the people that I work with. Three years ago, I tried to get a bunch of CEOs to run a little remote Friday experiment and they all said, no, thanks. And of course, if they had been willing to try that experiment, they would have had all of 2018 and 2019 to figure out how to make remote work work when we weren't you know, like working while we're, we're taking three kids through online school and trying to avoid COVID. And I think seeing that resistance to rethinking in myself and also running into brick walls over and over again made me think, all right, somebody needs to tackle this. How would you describe the thesis of the book? I guess the thesis of the book is that people generally assume that if they're good at thinking, they're going to be good at rethinking. And that's not true. In fact, the smarter you are, often the worse you are at rethinking because you can use your intelligence to contort the truth into what you want to hear and what you want to believe. And I think this is important because we live in a rapidly changing world where it's possible to become an expert for a world that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, the, the slower we are to think again, the more likely it is that we're going to be wrong a lot. Mm hmm. And is it because you mentioned the thing about intelligence and I think, you know, you, you, you mentioned in the book, this great thing about being a, a logic bully, which I thought was so funny. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I might even become a logic bully at some point in this conversation. And if I am, please call me out. No, I'll be so honored to be bullied by your brilliant logic. It'll go on my resume. But I'm just wondering a little bit about how this happens because I was thinking about this because of you the other night at the dinner table. And my teenagers, they are rethinkers. They're learning and they're open. They've not gotten to that place where they're calcified in their thinking or they're right, right? It's extremely kind of agile. And so what is the kind of data that we gather throughout our lives to convince us that we're right? And what happens to us? Do we conflate opinion with self? Yeah, I think... So many of us let our ideas become our identities. And it sort of makes sense, right? It's, it's a way of you know, sort of maintaining a, a healthy level of self-esteem, right? To feel validated. It's a way of, of making the world around you more predictable, right? If, if you were rethinking every single opinion that you had, you would feel like you're just living in chaos. And it's also a way to fit into your social circle, right? If, if you let go of your beliefs or admit that you're wrong, then you risk exclusion from whatever tribe you happen to belong to. And I think over time, a lot of us, we come to prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. And it's easy right, to say, all right, I'm just going to listen to the ideas that make me feel good, not the ones that make me think hard. To surround myself with people who agree with my thought, or excuse me, to surround myself with people who agree with my conclusions, not the ones who challenge my thought process. And I think that's such a travesty because over time we get trapped in a filter bubble or an echo chamber, and then we're just affirming our beliefs, which is not learning, right? We're not evolving. And it's incremental, right? I mean, people get convinced slowly as they go along that they're more and more right. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're great. We're great revisionist historians. <laughs> uh, the, the term for it in psychology is the totalitarian ego, right? Where there's this mini dictator living in your brain trying to control the flow of negative, negative information and shield you from it the same way that Kim Jong-un would, would keep out bad press in North Korea. And that means that all the times we're wrong, we can explain away, we forget, we make excuses for, but the times we're right, we take pride in those. And that's who I am. 
what is underneath it though? Like what hurts us so much about being wrong? Well, I might be wrong about this. So this is this is just a hypothesis in the spirit of practicing what I teach. But I think one of the reasons it's so painful to be wrong is we live in a world that celebrates and rewards certainty and that mistakes confidence for competence. So there's this there's this fear, right? I, I walk around thinking, oh no, if I find out that I was incorrect, then everybody's gonna think I'm an idiot. And that means I can't succeed. I can't make friends and I'm in big trouble in life. What, what do you make of that? I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, there's a, certainly, it seems like there's a survival piece to it, right? Like I have to, my, my, I equate my competence with survival. I also just wonder how it's linked to self-esteem and how much of our lives we spend fighting the idea of who we're, who we're afraid we are and how much being wrong sort of punctuates that. Yeah, it's uh, my, my favorite definition of hostility is, is the one the psychologist George Kelly used, where he said that hostility is that, <laughs> that sense of, of aggression or anger that you have toward someone who's convinced you against your will that something that you already know deep down isn't true is in fact not true. And then you just you just want to lash out at them. You're like, no, no, no. I'm, I've been working really hard to persuade myself that that thing I was wrong about, I was not wrong about. And I hate you for making me see the light. So how would you apply that to, for example, what's going on right now in our country? And this is why this book is so incredibly timely. I think it's hard. I, I don't have any silver bullets. Uh, but I think there, there are steps we could take that on the margin might help. So which, which version of, of our country's problems do you want to talk about, Gwyneth? Well, let's start from the point of what you were just saying, which is somebody basically shines a light on some aspect of a person that they don't like or they've convinced themselves isn't real. And then it's resonant and brought back up. So if you take this binary thinking, of, you know, take any any issue that that's binary, right? Take abortion. So there is a charge to talking about that topic, no matter no matter which way you think and what you believe and what God you believe in and what freedom you believe in, whatever. There is such a charge to that issue. And it becomes so incredibly emotional for people so quickly. And certainly for cohorts for whom it will have never impact, like men or grandmothers or whatever the case may be, but it's so deeply personal. So I'm wondering if it's true that people get super triggered by some unresolved aspect of them, how does that apply to one of these super hot button binary issues in the way people think about them? And why are they so reluctant to rethink them? Okay, so I think if I were talking to somebody who has a passionate view about ab abortion that's different from mine, I would probably start by just acknowledging that I might be wrong or my understanding might be incomplete, right? I want to show humility. I think the mistake that people make when they go into these kinds of charge conversations is they go into preacher and prosecutor mode. I'm right, you're wrong. And then the other person either attacks or shuts down. What I want to do then is I want to signpost the conversation and say, you know, look, I've, I've spent too much of my life as a logic bully. <laughs> where I just bombard people with, with you know, data and with reasons. And I realize when I do that, I don't learn anything. And I also come across as really stubborn. And that's not the kind of person I want to be. And so I would love to hear some of your perspective and try to understand it better and learn from you. 
And very often what the other person will do then is say, oh, well, you know what? Actually, I, I'm interested in learning too. And then we've, we've set the stage for a little bit of openness. Then I think the second thing I would do is I would try to establish that this opinion does not have to be your identity. So on abortion, it turns out that if you go back to the late 1960s, uh, views on abortion were not divided on party lines. Uh, this, is, this is a relatively new ideological position. And I just ask a bunch of questions. Why is that? How did that happen? How is it that conservatives were, you know, were, were not strongly opposed to abortion back in the 60s, but they are today? And the hope is that as we explore that, you recognize, all right, these beliefs are not set in stone. And, when, and once you recognize that, right, you're a little bit more flexible than you were before. And then from there, what I want to do, you talked about binary bias earlier. We're so good at taking these complex issues and oversimplifying them into two categories. I want to see the shades of gray. I want to say, okay, look, you know what? We, let's find the areas that we agree on. <laughs> we agree that 40 weeks, no abortions. We probably agree also that condoms are okay preconception. Maybe. Let's find out. And let's now figure out where we draw the line in between and, and we can try to be a little bit more nuanced that way. But something happens to human beings in this process where, and that's what I'm sort of trying to understand, is something happens along the way where even in a conversation that starts from a relatively open place, although nobody's going to approach it as, as you are, unless we take your class and read the book, which I hope everybody will. Try it at your own risk. But something happens in the course of these conversations where that kicks in, right? The resistance kicks in and the certainty kicks in. And is it, so is it possible to parse the fear piece or the fear of the ego piece from the actual subject at hand? And how do we get back to the actual discourse? Yes. Okay, good. So I'm thinking about the psychology of self-affirmation, which is about how when, if, if I were to question your beliefs about abortion, neuroscientists would say, you might feel like you've been punched in the mind. <laughs> there's, there's a literal activation of either your fear circuitry or um, you know, the punishment system and your, your natural impulse is to try to protect and defend. And one of the ways that I can preempt that is by affirming a core value of yours to say, hey, Gwyneth, uh, I know that you are somebody who cares deeply about human beings and who devotes a lot of your life to letting people be authentic. And once that's affirmed, it's a little bit easier to question one of your beliefs or your principles because all of a sudden your identity is more complex than just, I have a stance on abortion. I might start there. And then I guess the other thing that I would, I would be very curious about is... The, the psychology of this is, that's jumping out for me is this, this difference between asking why and asking how. So when you ask people why questions, they, they tend to double down, right? They find lots of reasons to stick to their guns or maybe their gun bans, depending on their, their ideology. When you ask people how, then they start to see gaps in their knowledge. And so I might shift the conversation a little bit and say, okay, I want to talk about the, the substance of abortion, given that there are state rights, Right? not just federal rights in America, how in the world would you, would you even go about formulating a policy and advancing your view? And as people start to think that through, they're like, wow, this is really complex. It's probably not realistic to have one dogmatic stance. And so now I need to be a little bit more flexible. And again, the hope is that we can have a conversation then, as opposed to just uh, <laughs> putting up a, a wall and saying that's the end of it. 
Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So I guess I should go back to this because your phrase logic bully, which I love, I guess the reason that this whole thing makes me, it always makes me think about where, how our ego plays a role above anything else, above what we actually think or actually believe. And we can convince ourselves because my tribe believes something, I believe in something. And in order to try to convince other people, like we try to break other people down with logic and it's super effective. I mean, if somebody, I think if somebody's coming at something with more of an emotional, emotionally driven opinion, and they don't feel as articulate to be kind of bombarded with, with data and, and history and facts, it really just tends to separate people more. So how, how do we identify if we are logic bullies? Because I don't think any of us walk around thinking that we are, but in fact, we might very well be. I mean, if you really wanted to get scientific about it, you could start to track your own conversations. So I don't, I don't know that anybody wants to do this with the level of precision that, that we like in social science, but we measure things like question to statement ratios. Right. And, and you see that if you're, you're only giving answers and you're not asking questions, then you're probably more in logic bully mode. Another, I think, hallmark of being a logic bully, and I, I know because this is what I do all the time, is like, OK, I, I, I just realized that somebody seems to be wrong about something that I think I'm an expert on. And it's my now it's my moral responsibility to correct them. And then what I'll do is I'll start giving them 14 reasons. And not, not only am I, am I making it clear to them that I'm trying to influence them, which leads them to put their guard up, but I'm also diluting my own argument. And if they're resistant to what I'm about to say, then they'll just pick the least compelling reason, number 12, and just throw out the whole case on that basis, right? Whereas if I gave them my two strongest reasons, I'm less of a logic bully, and I'm also not giving them an easy excuse to, <laughs> to just say, nah, I don't buy it. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. But I think the real way to tell that you're a logic bully is you're in a conversation with a student who calls you for career advice and she says, Adam, you're a logic bully. (laughs) Thank you for telling me. I I didn't know that. And then maybe a week or two later, my wife told me the same thing. And she said, not everyone wants to have a three and a half hour argument about the future of self-driving cars. That's probably true. (laughs) You know, I don't even think I want to have that argument. But when I get into it and I think somebody's wrong, I just, I, I love this cartoon where there's a guy who's sitting at a computer and he can't sleep. And the little thought bubble is like, someone is wrong on the internet. That's, that's the story of my life. Oh my gosh. I think that's the story of my life too. Is it? I mean, sort of. When I was sort of t- doing my own inventory around my own thinking, 
I think what you're saying is so interesting because I do think that if you're able to cultivate a feeling of that vulnerability is okay and you're not going to be humiliated by being in a debate where somebody's going to, you know, outlogic you or be super didactic or dogmatic and you're, there's no point to it. It's really interesting how this flow can come forward between two people and when when you're in defensiveness, it's such a it's such a protection having an opinion and and being right. And what you touched on earlier, it's such a safe way to not explore the harder parts of yourself. And I think you can in the workplace too, and obviously this is an area of expertise for you, but trying to find that balance between like leading with that kind of vulnerability or an openness while also trying to lead and inspire and create boundaries and expectations. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because it's a difficult balance and one that I'm trying to think a lot about as a leader. So how do you advise people to cultivate that balance? Individually or in their culture? Either, both. Um, well, let's let's start on the personal level. I think... We, we model behavior every day that signals to people what's going to get rewarded and what's going to get punished, right? So I think one of the, the best moves we can make is to, to, to be the person we want other people to be, right? Like Gandhi would have said, be the change. I think what I'm looking for here is to say we could all model a little bit more confident humility, which is to be secure enough in your ego to say things like, I might be wrong. I don't know. I, I'm not very informed about this topic. And what that does is it, it, it sends that message, right? It says to other people, hey, you know what? Like, this, is, this is not a sign of ignorance when you say you don't know something. That's actually a sign that you're not insecure and that you're, you're interested in improving yourself, not just proving yourself. And I think as a leader, if you can take that a step further, I, I did some research at the Gates Foundation where... Uh, there was there was a real interest in creating psychological safety so that people could take those kinds of risks and say, okay, if I ask for help or I admit that I made a mistake, I'm not going to get punished. And one of the things that, that I found was that when leaders criticize themselves out loud, uh, so M Melinda Gates, for example, reading negative feedback from employees out loud, that people felt much more comfortable trying new things, taking risks, rethinking their own views, inviting leaders to rethink some of their assumptions. And I think what's so powerful about being able to criticize yourself out loud is you're not just showing that you're open to it, you're proving you can take it. And I think that's something we need more leaders to do. So I want to ask you this because I have teenagers. I have two of my own and two step. And as I mentioned before, they are inherently open-minded. But? But I'm worried that as time goes on and life goes on and they start to compound being right with being successful and they start to, as we all do, how do you as a parent encourage rethinking or that, that openness in thinking to be part of their foundation? I think one of the one of the most effective things you can do is to talk about your own rethinking, right? To show your work. So you know, modeling is a really big thing here. It, it is. You know, I hadn't I hadn't realized that was a pattern, but it is, and it's a pattern because if you, I mean, every parent has had the experience of you know of preaching at your kids and seeing them do the exact opposite, and and 
they they obviously pay more attention to what we do than what we say. And in this case, you could you could do both at the same time, which is I've I've actually I've started talking with our kids and my, my wife and I sometimes do this at dinner. We'll have a family dinner table conversation about our biggest mistakes. The you know, the the things we were most wrong about. Sometimes it's actually really fun and lighthearted. We had a whole conversation, this is I think last year, where they were I think they were talking about the solar the solar system. And it came out that we learned in school that Pluto was a planet. And they were shocked and horrified. (laughs) How in the world could you think that? What? They started asking us what century we were from and are we we living in the dark ages? And it was a great moment for us to laugh at ourselves, right? To say, you know what? And not part of one of the conversations we ended up having was I said, look, not only did I believe for most of my life that Pluto was a planet, I also was resistant to letting go of that belief because I like I I grew up thinking there were nine planets. The if, if the solar system isn't what I thought it was, what else am I believing that's wrong? And that that's pretty destabilizing. And so it was a chance for them to make fun of me, for me to make fun of myself, but then to to really show, hey, you know what? When you screw up, when you're wrong about something, you can laugh at yourself. And yeah, maybe you're a little bit embarrassed that you were holding on to to an outdated belief. But that's a sign you've learned something in showing that, right? You're teaching your kids to laugh at themselves too. Yeah. And so important to separate that feeling of, as you say, humiliation from being wrong. You know, because sometimes, I mean, actually, this brings me to another question that I wanted to ask you about, which was, you talk about imposter syndrome in the book. And this is something that particularly, I, I, I'm not sure about men, but I, I definitely know that women and my, my peers, women CEOs, absolutely feel it a lot. And there's a great deal of energy that goes into covering for that feeling. But you say that there are actually some advantages, right, <laughs> to, to having imposter syndrome. So I would, I would love to hear you explain that a little bit more. Sure. And I, I'm curious to hear whether this, this tracks with your experience at all or the, the many women CEOs and founders that, that you hang out with. So this, this all started when we had a doctoral student at Wharton, Basima Tufik, who was interested in, in imposter syndrome. And she decided to study it and look at what, imp- what impact it had on, on performance in different kinds of jobs. And she found she basically just measured how often people had imposter thoughts. So how often do you doubt yourself, question your abilities, think that you're not as good as everyone else thinks you are? And she found with investment professionals and medical professionals, there were no costs of having more frequent imposter thoughts. And there were some benefits that investment professionals were more likely to second guess their decisions instead of being overconfident uh, to say, hey, maybe I don't have all the answers. That physicians were more likely to listen to their patients instead of interrupting them. <laughs> yeah, like, huh, maybe I should get a second opinion here. Maybe maybe the diagnosis I was sure of in the first four seconds is not accurate. And I think what, what she came away realizing is if we define imposter syndrome as just your confidence being below your competence, that that creates a gap where you feel like, okay, I have something to prove. So that motivates you to work harder, to close the gap. And then also you believe you don't know everything and that keeps you humble and it makes you curious and you learn more from the people around you instead of being on a pedestal of expertise. And I think where I landed on this was to say, why do we have to make this into a syndrome? Like a chronic debilitating condition? 
No, yeah, okay, there are some people who walk around with this, you know, chronic sense that I'm unworthy, I'm a fraud, everyone is going to find out that I don't deserve anything I've ever achieved in my life, my professors from 20 years ago are going to take away all of my grades because I can't possibly have known anything. Uh, that That's rare, right? What's common is the everyday doubt of the, what if I've lost a step? What if I'm not prepared for this role? And having those thoughts is what keeps us motivated to succeed and motivated to learn is my thought. The data did show that women were a little bit more likely to hesitate in the face of those doubts and that men were a little bit more likely to be motivated by them. And I, you know, I'll, I'll say as a white man, like, I generally have had the privilege of walking around in a world where people assume that I'm competent and that I know what I'm, I'm talking about. And I can imagine if I had been a woman or a person of color and I feel these doubts, I'm more likely to internalize them, right? Because I live in a culture uh, where I have to prove my competence over and over again. So that's that's where I landed. What do you make of all this? Well, I think it's interesting because I obviously started in one career and then I went to another where the learning curve was so steep and I'm learning on the job, which I think underscores any imposter syndrome that would be kind of just baseline imposter syndrome that we all have going through the world. And for me, for example, I've been CEO for four or five years now and have been growing the company. And there are so many days I feel like an imposter because I remember when I started and I didn't know what certain acronyms were. And it was kind of Googling under the table to not embarrass myself. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck anyone is talking about and, and trying to learn accounting and Excel and banking rules and just things that are were completely out of my wheelhouse that I never went to school for. I, I don't have an MBA. So I feel like, yeah, I have a really good reason to feel like an imposter. But I think at the same time, what hurts is that it's mirrored by people who think an actress, a blonde actress, woman who started a company mustn't she can't possibly know what she's talking about and she can't be close to her business. And I get comments all the time in meetings like, wow, you really, you really, you're really close to your business. Like you understand your business. And, and so I think, wow. So the, the pervasive prejudgment is that I am an imposter. So I think for me, it's a little bit heightened and I am, or I used to be in a cycle of feeling like I have to prove myself and I have to set the table by letting this person knows that, know that I actually am competent and, that I do know what the acronyms stand for and that I understand performance marketing and I understand inventory management or all this. But, but then at a certain point, I was like, you know what, this is not productive and it's not a good use of my time or energy. And I'm actually reinforcing the imposter syndrome by giving it this much contemplation time. But I also do feel that in certain aspects, it does keep me in this space of intense curiosity, intense learning and therefore intense inspiration. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So yeah, so you're you're trying to keep it from becoming a syndrome and <laughs> just say, okay, if I if if I feel if I feel these doubts, then I'm gonna take that as as a clue that I need to work harder and learn more. Right. Now I, I've always wondered about the confidence spillover piece of this because you've been what, Wendy Darling, Margot Tenenbaum, Pepper Potts for a lot of years, right? Obviously, to master all those different roles, you, you had to build up a certain level of self-confidence. Is the issue that it didn't spill over into business and all of a sudden you're in, you're in a foreign culture? Or do you, do you still get some of the, hey, you know what? I learned to excel at one thing. 
uh, I can probably apply that same grit, that same curiosity, that same eagerness to learn to anything I try. I think the halo from the first thing is limited. It's a small halo. <laughs> I think that to truly be a, a founder or to start something to be an entrepreneur and to have to learn, it's like I was, it was so out of my wheelhouse. And I think there are certain things that I could were applicable. Like um, I do actually think that artists who want to succeed are by nature entrepreneurial. Like nobody believes in you, but you. Nobody thinks you're going to be able to pull this off. You know, you have to have more self-belief than anyone else. It's, so it's really aligned with what it means to, and what it, it, to be an entrepreneur. There are some applicable things about culture. Like when you're a woman on a movie set, you learn a lot about managing dynamics and sort of keeping the peace and being a cheerleader. And But other than that, to go from my first career into this one, I mean, it was, I, I was totally ill-prepared, completely. <laughs> Got it. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I think in some ways I'd rather see that in the opposite though, which is, uh, you know, I, I worry so much about it's Tony Stark syndrome. Right? <laughs> I, I aced one thing and all of a sudden I overgeneralize that and think I must be a genius at everything. Right. Which I see with founders all the time. Yeah. I had a startup idea. Everybody told me I was crazy. It became a unicorn and changed the world. And now I believe that whenever somebody says I'm crazy, that, mean, that means I must be right. And they're all wrong. I've borne witness to that. That's a very male founder trait, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's such a beauty in the world dismantling those ideas for you, even though it's so painful at the time. And look, you might be right once and you might have incredible success and you might generalize it, but pretty quickly the world will make you recalibrate. And, and those are, I mean, for me anyway, those have been the most important lessons in rethinking the way that I think about myself and the way that I'm walking through the world is when there's a level set that happens. Because, you know, it's also a beautiful thing to believe so wholeheartedly in something. And the balance is where it gets so tricky. That's what's so fascinating to me is like balancing self-belief and humility. It, I, I think it's, it's, for so many people, it feels like a tightrope walk. And they're worried that I don't want to be overconfident. I don't want to be underconfident. This is what I love so much about the idea of confident humility. To say, all right, you know what? I believe in myself, but I'm going to doubt my knowledge, my skills, my strategies. And that way, I'm not confident that I've, I've figured everything out today. I'm just confident that I can learn tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. I love that phrase so much. It sets the, it's like sets the tone perfectly. You know, if you think about if you're nervous to go into a meeting or to do an interview or whatever, it's like, if you can just embody that phrase and make it sort of make your molecules buzz, like you're set up for success, right? Bring it on. You, so this is an interesting one. So you talk in the book as well about people pretending to know things that they don't know and that it's a pet peeve. It, it is, it's, it's tough that this is a tough one, but why is that this sort of, you know, we have these, this, this cursory knowledge of something and then we, you know, exaggerate it or why do we, what is that? Like, isn't it so easy to dispel, you know, somebody's knowledge about something or, but it's so sad. Like, why do we do that? Well, I think 
the standard explanation in psychology is that when you're a complete novice, total beginner, you don't make that mistake because you know that you know nothing. And then as you start to get a little bit competent or a little bit knowledgeable, your confidence climbs faster than your competence. And pretty soon you're, you're paying too much attention to the rate of your learning as opposed to how much knowledge you've actually accumulated. And you see this, like there's a, there's a great experiment that, that David Dunning and I think Carmen Sanchez did with a simulated zombie apocalypse uh, where they have, they have people, you know, they're, they're in the simulation and there are all these people who have been bitten by zombies and they're taught, you know, how to treat them and cure them. And at, at the very beginning, like I'm completely incompetent and they are actually incompetent. And then as they, they treat a patient or two, all of a sudden their competence goes up a little bit and their confidence goes up a lot. And we see this, I mean, we see this with medical residents, right? I think one of the reasons that a lot of people will, will reference the July effect with new residents taking over and, and more, edical, excuse me, more medical errors being made is, is not necessarily because the residents don't know what they're doing. It's because they don't know that they don't know what they're doing. And that is, that's a, just a frightening place to be. Is there a correlation between that and the, your starting point? Do you know what I mean? Like if you're, so if you're, if you're one of these people that start off from a place of not, of wanting to come off that, you know, more than you, you do, like, is there a correlation between that and how quickly there's that divide between your competence and confidence? Oh, I, I have, you know what? I haven't seen that studied. I think my hunch is yes. Uh, It's, it's a hypothesis waiting to be tested, but I think yeah, if you're if you're a narcissist and you're motivated to believe that you're really great, then it's pretty easy to confirm that and ignore any evidence to the contrary. My favorite definition of of arrogance is Tim Urban's on Wait But Why. It's arrogance equals ignorance plus conviction. <laughs> and, and yeah, I think if you're an arrogant person, you're you're probably you're gonna confirm your you know your your inflated view of yourself, but. I also think there's it's not just it's not just ego and motivation, right? It's also information. One of the challenges of of living in this territory where you don't know that much is you don't necessarily know what it looks like to know a lot. So there's there's another study I like of of people who score low in emotional intelligence. They're the most likely to overestimate their emotional intelligence. <laughs> and it's not just because they want to think they're good at, you know, at knowing what other people are feeling and managing their emotions. It's because if you lack emotional intelligence, you literally don't know what emotional intelligence looks like. And so you can't judge yourself accurately. Right. So say you're a professor at Wharton and you're tenured since you're 28 and you've you've written all these best-selling books. And how do you keep yourself in check? How do you keep yourself rethinking? Because you know a hell of a lot and your insights are really profound and you teach a lot of people, you elevate a lot of people. So how do you not let that get to you or do you? And then you have a, a way of unthinking it and rethinking it. Oh, this is not a hypothetical question, is it? <laughs> I don't know if you know anyone like that, but. Uh, I recognize the person you're describing. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the person I know, uh, but the, that, that portrait has been painted. Uh, I mean, I, I do a few things that I found helpful. The first one is I married Allison, my wife, who is the first person to point out when I'm wrong. And it happens almost every hour, if not every day. So 
that's a that's a regularly humbling experience, which I think we should all have. Allison's my best critic. She is constantly like I, I I'm sure you've experienced for most of your career that people look at you and they say, okay, Gwyneth Paltrow, like, of course I want her to like me. And so I'm only going to tell her the things that she wants to hear. And Allison is the first person to say, like, you have no idea what you're talking about here. I don't know why anyone listens to you. <laughs> you, you, you might want to rethink this. So that, that's always helpful. And that she's, I would say she's the founding member of my challenge network, which is a kind of network we all need. We know the value of a support network, right? They're, they're the people who cheerlead for us who encourage us, who rebuild our confidence when it's shattered. We need a challenge network, a group of thoughtful critics who believe in our potential and push us to reach it. And I have gone to a bunch of people since writing Think Again and said, hey, you may not know this, but I consider you one of the founding members of my challenge network. And I, I know I haven't always taken your criticism well. Sometimes I've been defensive. Other times I've just been distracted or dismissive. But I really appreciate it. And if you're ever worried about hurting my feelings, you can't. The only way you can hurt my feelings is by not telling me the truth. And I've gotten much better critical feedback after having those conversations because people know, oh, well, this is, this is not something I have to be worried is going to damage our relationship. I also, um, Gwyneth, I keep a, a running ignorance list, which is just a, a list of things that I'm clueless about. So I, I put on the list initially fashion, chemistry, food, financial markets, art. And it's just a good reminder to say, you know what, there are huge parts of the world that I'm just completely uninformed on. And the hope is then that I seek out people who are more knowledgeable and I learn about those things. But also, I came up with really specific things too. Like, I still cannot figure out why you can't tickle yourself. I've talked to a lot of neuroscientists. They say it's the element of surprise. But then like, you can run the experiment. It's really easy. Go and tell one of your kids you're going to tickle them and they'll still laugh. So it's not a surprise. Like, what is it? I don't know. And I really want to know. And I think having those what are called curiosity gaps, right? Uh, <laughs> a, a gaping hole between what you know and what you want to know, like it keeps you eager to learn. Yeah, that's for sure. I was going to ask you about this way of thinking in a marriage. That was going to be my last question. So, okay. So now we know how Allison operates, but how do you apply this? To your marriage, like how do you, if, if the goal is to have this kind of quality of communication with your spouse, how do you bring this wisdom in the book into a marriage? <laughs> uh, I've been I've been learning the hard way that I don't do it nearly as often as I should. <laughs> uh, I mean, there there are days when Allison's like, "You wrote the book about thinking again, really, really." Uh, I. I think the the thing that I've found, I don't know, the, the thing that's, that's probably been helpful most of the time is to, to just go in really clear about what I'm trying to accomplish. So the mistake I make is I'll say, hey, can you read this? Or, you know, like, what's, what's your thought on this idea? And I'm not, I'm not clear enough that I'm collecting lots of perspectives. So what I've learned to do is to say, uh, and sometimes I remember to do it, sometimes I don't, is to say, okay, I value your opinion the most, and that means I'm going to ask you at the beginning and at the end. And I'm going to collect lots of different views in between because I know some of the things that I'll, I'll hear from you are quality and others might just be taste. And you're not a perfect representation of my audience, and so there are times when you love something. Actually, no, there are times when you like something and other people don't. There are times when you don't like something and other people do. And so if you hear me pushing back, that's not me not valuing your feedback. 
it's me trying to, to sort out, okay, how much weight should I put on this particular judgment or opinion? And I think that it, it's so interesting to me that when I, when I seek feedback from other people and when they tell me things about my work, I know the first thing I have to do is to make it clear that I appreciated it. And that if I didn't agree with it, it didn't mean I didn't value it. But I forget to do this all the time at home because I just take for granted, right, that, that Allison knows that I always appreciate her feedback and that's why I keep asking for it. And so I think just I think that's something I need to reinforce over and over and over again is I'm asking you to help me rethink things. That doesn't mean I'm always going to be open to it, but I want you to keep doing it. How do you apply this in a marriage? Well, you know, it's interesting because my my, my marriage now, it's such a critical part of it's it's a it's a real building block of my marriage, like having the capacity and the malleability to rethink and show up with vulnerability and talk about being called on your shit. I mean, I happen to be married to somebody who is so observant. He's so brilliant and so observant and so energetically sensitive. And he leans into intimacy. And I'm like, when I get triggered, you know, I'm like, I shut down, you know? And, and so he, he's the one that is able to remain calm and, and give me the feedback that's so hard for me to hear. And hearing those that that feedback at the same time, you're thinking, I don't want to be here. I'm leaving the room. I I don't want to feel anything. And I know that this person is right. So at some point I'm going to have to figure out a way to metabolize all of this at the same time and understand that the purpose of this marriage is to break down these pre-existing ideas about myself that I've held on to so tightly in order to protect myself. And so for me, I'm really lucky because I have an amazing partner who makes me in a very nice way, rethink these things. He sort of holds me to a certain standard. And I think I do the same for him, but that's, what's so interesting too, about being reading this book, you know, as a boss, as a wife, as a mother, like there's so much incredible wisdom in the book. And obviously it's, you're a scientist and it's coming from this place of, of research, but then there's this really, it's strung together with this really beautiful human approachable way of like, you know, you just make it so applicable. I really, I'm so happy you wrote it. And I'm so happy that I got to speak to you because it forced, it was a forcing function. Like I better read this right now. Otherwise I would have said, Oh, I don't have time and all, but I just feel like it's, it's going to really stay with me. And it's, it's, it's really amazing. Thank you so much for writing it. Well, thank you. I, I hope you don't rethink anything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> some, I, I won't. Some, some thoughts should, should be protected and left alone. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Adam Grant. I hope you pick up a copy of his fascinating book, Think Again. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.